When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving higher time and time again. Through the years you'll find a seat. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast Markets with Sean Hackett. Sean Hackett is with Hackett Financial out of Boca Raton, Florida. He's nice enough to come on and talk about what's happening in the marketplace. Sean, how you doing? I'm doing really good, Casey. Glad to be on the show as always. I'm glad to have you on, man. All right, got a somewhat of an important crop tour going on this year. This, you know, I think this year is one of those years where it actually, not that it's not important every year because I mean, obviously it is, but I think this year is. Uh, probably have a little more weight to what the information that comes out of this crop tour, the pro farmer crop tour than I think in past years. So Sean, as you take a look at day one's results, any big shockers there to you or are you expect, is that what you expected to see? Well, I think the most important thing about the tour is because there, there is such a, a wide degree of, of very has been such a wide degree of variability um, with the weather. I mean, I was in Iowa for, several days and I traveled over a good portion of the central part of the state and um, the, the variability was just unbelievable from one side of the road to the next unbelievable looking corn horrible looking corn right next to each other so very very hard to determine what that all looks like when you put it all together in the end so not that the crop any crop tour can 
fully answer those questions, but I think what the crop tour, I, I think what's important is to try to determine are the good areas better than we thought? Are the bad areas worse than we thought? Because whichever side um, turns out to be worse than expected, that's where the yields are going to surprise to the upside or to the downside. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, yep. So. Yeah, so just kind of run through some of these numbers real quick as we're looking at. So they went to South Dakota and Ohio yesterday. And uh, last year, South Dakota was 118.45 bushels per acre, which they had an epic drought, right? They had horrible drought situations they went through. This year, they've got tons of rain so and snow and everything else um, in the wintertime. So the uh, moisture level is way higher. So now we're looking at an average yield of what they're anticipating to be 157.42 bushels an acre. So up tremendously, well, tremendously. I mean, South Dakota is definitely was expected to be a really good, right. uh, good state, you know, garden spot this year for mm -hmm. a rare garden spot this year, but all my customers are saying yields are phenomenal and really good. So, yeah. so that's, that's the good part. You know, that's, yep. that's where you're going to see the yields be really good. Now, you know, is that good enough to offset maybe something we, we find out later is, uh, uh, not quite as good. I mean, that's really going to be the key. I mean, South Dakota is important, but obviously not as important as Nebraska, Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana. I mean, it's important, but not as important as those states. But nonetheless, I'm not sure it's, it's that much of a surprise that South Dakota yeah. is substantially above last year and actually above their three-year average, I think. Um, you know, so and then, of course, it just comes down to um, – that versus USDA expectations and that sort of thing. Sure. So. Yep. In Ohio, they were up about nine bushels an acre year over year at 183.94 bushels an acre, and that put them above their three-year uh, three-year average, which was about about eight bushels, eight and a half bushels more than their three-year average. Remember, so. Ohio, Ohio missed out on all the drought. <clears> yeah, they did. Uh, Iowa and, uh, and Indiana and Illinois, you know, they, they they just worked far enough and, and caught rains. And so, yeah. once again, we, you know, that's not an area that we were looking for some major crop issues at all. In yeah. fact, we were expecting them to be strong and potentially a little stronger than it was last year. So, you know, once again, I'm just not sure those two numbers are uh, – surprising that they're strong but let's yep. put it this way we certainly didn't see them disappoint right you know meaning that yep. the yields came in below what we thought they kind of delivered on good crops so right now from what i'm thinking looking at ohio south dakota there's no reason for the market to change its bearish view right now meaning there's nothing in the ohio numbers and the south dakota numbers that says you know this crop's worse than we thought it better than we thought it's pretty much right now from those numbers what we thought and yeah. So that means we pretty much move on, and and this is not going to be a material event up or down, um, in my view, in terms of the psychology of the market. Yeah, yeah, and, and then today they hit the they hit routes from uh, Nobleville, Indiana, to Bloomington, Illinois, and they hit the Western Lake comes through Central and Southern Nebraska. So I kind of throw my two cents on Nebraska here, since that's where I live, but it's. Uh, Central Nebraska, there was a hard line this spring between one side of that was was wet and the other side of it was dry as a bone. And that's a, where they're going to start today. It's going to be that that pivot point. Now, they did get plenty of rain here of late. They've gotten lots of rain. But there for the longest time, the concern wasn't so much um, 
yeah, we got the rain now, but how much damage was done to the crop going into those rains that we saw coming? Because we had almost six or eight weeks there where there was no rain at all, and it was you know fairly warm and and windy and those well, kind of things. I agree. I mean, certainly yeah. would expect the eastern Nebraskan grain belt to come up short of last year, and and right. but but is it bad enough? Is right. it worse than expected? You know, is it better than expected? You know, down from last year is expected. It's a question yeah. of degree, but I would agree with you that as we start, the, the, the key areas to really focus on is that uh, eastern Nebraska. As I said, I was in uh, central northern Iowa, um, an area that had a lot of spotty rain, spotty conditions. Some missed a lot of the rain. Some got some of the rains. Um, very interesting to see how they assimilate all that wide variability of crop conditions and yields and see what they come up with. Obviously, Iowa, a key state to, yeah. to deliver on national yield uh, determination. And that's what you're going to see, too, today with that the Indiana to Illinois route that they run is that there's going to be some, a lot of variability in there. I've talked to a lot of guys in Iowa and Illinois, uh, or sorry, Indiana and Illinois over this uh, spring, and and one of them went, hey, this, we got great crop going. Next guy would be, I don't know if we're going to have a crop this year. And then they've got some rain, and then, okay, things look great now. But then you started getting the, yeah, it looks good from the road until you start walking in there, and you don't, the the uh, the rounds just aren't there on the on on the, each kernel, so or each cob. So a lot of people have to, and I think a lot of people have to understand that yields has not completely been determined yet. Um, right. Yes, we had a good, cool, wet first half of August, which helped add yield, but we're going to have a blisteringly hot, dry back half of August, which is going to take yield off, especially for soybeans. So you know, this crop tour isn't it isn't like we're ready to harvest yet. I mean, right. in the south they are, but but I mean, there can be still some up or down variability as we go into the final phase of, of, um, of maturation here. And so, um, you know, this extremely hot, dry weather pattern in the back half of August is going to take some yield away that we put on in the first half of August. And, and that this tour really cannot determine yet because it's too early for them to have seen what that looks like, you know? Yeah. Yep. All right. So, a lot to pay attention to there. I think is going to see just how this this crop tour, like I said, is going to really have a big swing in the market because a lot of people are anticipating what you're talking about. There is the, the variability in crop and, and what that overall how that thoughts on. Well, remember you know, the, the other thing is right now it, you you know you measure how many ears there are for corn and how many rows and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, the way the USDA ultimately determines yield is test weight, right? right. You've got to got to weigh it, um, which they don't really do until later on in the year. And that really determines, you know, you can count all the ears you want, you can count all the rows you want, but it's how much, how much grain fill that you get and what kind of test weight do you have ultimately determines yield. I think that's where if you're going to see the adverse weather that we had in May and June and early July really show up, I think it's going to show up in lighter test weight which will not really show up in a crop tour right now because they're not really going to be able to, to to really get a handle on that until we finish everything out. But to me, that's probably where the surprise, at least for corn yields, could come from to the downside is they, you know, we get a big adjustment later in the year or they adjust corley grain stocks to reflect it or something of that nature that the test weight uh, isn't showing up um, and ultimately yield is going to have to be knocked down because yield is a – is a is a is a is a, uh, is a formula of of quantity volume plus t- plus weight. Yeah. So. Yep. Okay. 
All right, let's jump over and talk a little bit about this hurricane that we saw hit um, California over the weekend and kind of working its way north now. Last time I saw it was up in, I mean, the remnants were up into Nevada and, and moving into Idaho. Um, I guess Shantang looked at a very rare situation to have a hurricane of that magnitude hit uh, anywhere on, on the uh, eastern or the western coast of the United States or Mexico for that matter. Um, Shantang, a look at what you see there. Any disruptions you think that may be Cause, that could cause market disruptions or, or anything else there that you could see that could be a major issue outside of the um, typical things we see come from hurricanes? Um, you know, I mean, in terms of markets that trade futures, that area doesn't really matter much. Mm -hmm. um, they grow a lot of vegetables, and of course vegetables could be an issue, and you know, maybe there could be some shortages of, of the vegetables that they grow in California. The Pima cotton, which is really not a futures market, it's the high-quality cotton that you that your high-end luxury goods clothing companies use to make the really high refined cotton that they grow in California. That area was just missed, um, so they avoided an issue. Um you know, so ultimately, you know, yeah, dairy, you know, maybe could be impacted by a little bit of flooding. But once again, you know, this is a kind of a, a quick shot. You get a bunch of flooding and then it goes back to hot and dry and it goes away. So I don't think this is a market mover as much as it is a very unusual weather event. I mean, we, we typically get one of these every 35 to 40 years. It's typically, you know, when we get one of these hurricanes, mm -hmm. it comes right up in, you know, early 80s, I think 84. 384 is the last one we had like this, and then you pretty much, as for whatever reason, get one of these every 35 to 40 years. Um, so it's it's pretty, you know, Mojave Desert, you know, getting um, three to four inches of rain, right? For them, yeah. is like an That's, entire year's worth of rainfall yeah. in like one day, massive, mm -hmm. massive, crazy flooding, not a great impact. To no, it's on, you know, but but it is a it's a great, not a great, it's it's a very, um, unusual weather story and weather phenomenon to follow and what it how it impacts the areas in southern and central california but outside of vegetable production which really we don't trade futures on not a really big impact to the market yeah so. okay all right let's jump over and talk about ukraine so ukraine is getting to be a little more dicey i guess than, than it's been in the past so you start looking at the um various countries in nato that are helping out um you know, Ukraine with with uh, arms and stuff like that. Um, let's see, uh, trying to remember who who they just okayed the F sixteen to be to be over there, so they're starting to take delivery of those. Um, I can't remember how much um, what countries those were, but uh, Holland and somebody else. I can't remember who it was, but anyway, doesn't matter. Um, they're going to start sending that over there. The, the talk for uh, long-range weapon weaponry being delivered to uh, Ukraine is starting to fade, and, and they're starting to be a little more, um, you know, we're going to start allowing some of that stuff to come in. Russia seems to be more becoming more and more recluse when you start looking at some of the stuff that they're talking about. You are talking about earlier today how Turkey and, and uh, Qatar and, and Russia were going to get together about delivering uh, grain into wheat into, into Africa. Nobody, everybody walked away from that without doing anything. So it's, it's just, there's a weird feeling coming out of Russia right now as you take a look at what's going on there. And they are really sticking to their guns about the stuff that you've talked about when you start talking about weaponizing food and what that looks like. So I guess, Sean, talk a little bit about that and what what is that, what are we seeing now in the marketplace with with Russia being so 
kind of we're just going to not sell anything if we don't have to type of deal. Beyond the sad, sad humanitarian consequences of those caught in the middle of this, which continues day by day, when I look at both sides, the only way that you're going to resolve this is the pain of continuing the war, not the political pain. Apparently, human suffering is not enough. Um, it needs to be political pain, has to be great enough that both sides, or at least one side, sees that continuing the war is being more painful politically than resolving it. When I see what Russia has done, why would uh, why are they going to do anything to stop this unless they get what they have been asking for, which is a reassurance of a lack of aggression from the West and the potential for capturing some lost uh, areas that Russia lost during the 89 meltdown that they had that they feel is Russia, ethnic Russian predominantly and thinks that if it's put to a vote that they would be willing to go back to Russia. And on the West side, we've spent so much political capital and spent so much monetary capital, Casey. I mean, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars going in here. You know, I don't see why NATO, the West, whoever you want to call it, would back away from all that invested capital in this war and just say we're just going to not get anything out of the deal. Um, the sad thing is, as I said, the humanitarian consequences continue day by day. But to me, if I'm Russia and I'm thinking through this, this war, the, the West, the other side is not going to concede anything unless they feel the pain of the situation. And the only thing that I can foresee, and we saw a little bit of this a year ago when we had the energy crisis in Europe, that if you get energy prices and food prices too high, where the pain uh, and suffrage from a starvation point of view, not people involved in the war, but a starvation point of view from countries that are not involved in the war directly, becomes so great that you run the risk of civil unrest, that you run the risk of government upheaval, uh, you know, upheaval revolution, you know, these are the kind of things that politicians in power don't want to set off and don't want to see. And if it looks like we're going to have soaring food and energy prices again going into the winter time, and they start becoming extreme, I could foresee that being enough political pain to have the West to feel that finding a resolution to the war would be a, a a, a better solution than continuing to fund the war. And as it stands right now, I don't see any reason why the the, the, the capital of the West would do anything to resolve this because they're, nothing is happening that would suggest that, that they have gotten anything back or anything in return for the huge amount of money and, and political capital that they've put into the situation. As sad as the humanitarian consequences have already been, Throughout history, politicians in power do not really consider those factors much unless it reaches people who are not directly involved in the war. So if I'm thinking that through, then Russia has to say, okay, why should we continue down this path of offering food to everybody as much as it might help people? That's not helping us. And we care about helping us 
other people, you know, if they get, you know, that's, that's fine. But we need, we, we want to get something out of this situation. So I feel that the food card needs to be played, or I think that Putin is feeling that that needs to be played. I think this grain deal that was supposed to potentially happen and, you know, and Qatar and Erdogan and, you know, all got, we're supposed to get together in Hungary and hash out, getting some, some wheat to countries in, in Africa that are in pretty tough shape that they all kind of left without anything resolving. I think that might be a sign that, you know, Russia's just not in any mood to, to be a good guy right now, you know, in terms of food. I just, that's why I see it. We have Ukraine independence anniversary coming up here on the 24th, I believe it is. Uh, 1991 was uh, Ukraine independence and history is riddled with aggressive actions by leaders and geopolitical, um, confrontations that they tend to take bold statements around important dates of significance to the other side. And so what better way to impose political pressure um, is, is to do something big when Ukraine would be, you know, uh, celebrating Ukraine independence, do something to show that that is on very, very thin ice. You know, I don't say any of this with excitement other than I'm just looking at what history has told us about when to expect things to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. All right. One more thing. We'll, we'll get your opinion on this as we take a look at it. This is the annual Jackson hole meeting of all the, all the world economic leaders, basically um, go to Jackson hole in the summer and then they go to Davos in the, in the winter. And this is the, uh, the time when they come down here to Jackson hole and they, enjoy being billionaires and whatnot and they start to shape world economic policy see i did that with my quotations right there um <clears throat> I, I, I i've never been invited yet so. i haven't been invited either yeah so um pretty sure that i won't ever have that option to, to come to, so. to that either but yeah. so we're looking at what's going on there uh, a lot of economic um stuff comes out of that the market tends to kind of swing a little bit on some of the news that comes out of these different different forms so i guess sean as you take a look at this what's your anticipation for market moves and and various other kind of uh news related bumps in the market i guess i think these meetings the davos and the one here in jackson hole are ways for the central bankers to throw out trial balloons where they don't commit to anything it's not a commit. They don't, you know, no one commits to anything at these meetings. They just throw – they have speeches and they throw out some comments. And I think they, they put out trial balloons and see how does the market react to certain things that they're considering or thinking about or might be wanting to do and see how the markets react to them as a, as a way to kind of measure the, the, the overall landscape of, and psychology of what they think they can get away with or not get away with. And if they, they throw a trial balloon out in one speech – Let's say Powell says something and the market's good and the Dow falls 1,500 points, they'll probably go, well, that's, you know, it's probably not something we're going to be doing right away because the markets don't seem to take that well. So I would view that as a, as a more important measure of what sticks and what do they talk about that the markets take friendly and what do they talk about that the markets take unfriendly as a sign of what the pathway for, because remember, we're heading into in election year in the U.S., there's elections all over the place in uh, in 24, from Europe and, and and U.S. and you know so so it's a it's a big political year for leaders to you know get the nod and say we're 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 fighting for you and that sort of thing. So I think the central banks obviously 
as much as they claim they're independent, all the chairmans are put there by political um, right. uh, appointments. Know, the, the politics yeah. allow them to be there. So they yeah. have to play within the rules of what the politicians need and want or else they're going to be out as far right. as the Fed chairman or the chairman of the Central Bank of the EU or, or the Japanese Central Bank chairmans and all that sort of thing. So, so I, I, you know, I, I think that's pretty important because the expectation is that interest rate increases are nearing an end. The expectation is that a lower interest rate environment is likely for 2024 um, and a more friendly monetary environment is for 24. Anything that they say counter to that in anyone's speech or anyone's side comments to any reporter It'd be interesting to see how the market handles that, um, and 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 how quickly maybe the, um, you know, there's the, there's a statement, and then there's the oh, we want to clarify what we actually meant, right? Right. So they yeah. they make a statement, they realize everybody hated it, and you know, you must understand we to clarify what we really meant. So that's very important because it really will lay out what they think they can get away with and what they think they can't get away with, and that will set the monetary barometer. For markets, because obviously stocks, commodities, bonds, which are now testing the high yield set from a year ago, um, the U.S. dollar, the currencies, everything is driven by global central bank interest rate and monetary policy in terms of printing money or not printing money and how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, and what it means. So very important, not that any specific action is going to be taken, but in terms of how the how the, the markets are going to try to put the central banks and try to put them into a corner of this is what you can get what we're going to allow and this is what we're not going to allow and you can go down this road but understand what it means i think that's what i would be looking for market reaction versus what was said and versus what is likely to occur going forward right on okay that's uh <clears throat> that's what i've always noticed too they just kind of throw things out there to see what sticks and then and it's the uh, ideological approach to economics just doesn't exist at the central bank level because it's, uh, uh, like you said, it, it, the ideology is whatever. Uh, even though they're not, um, they're not politicians, but they're appointed by politicians, and it's a, uh, it's an administration to administration type of job. Unless you're Alan Greenspan and you. Do it for ninety-two years or something like that. So, and just re- and just remember, Casey. You know, the the old rules of economics work until you become too indebted, and they don't work anymore. Meaning right. that when the when the governments get so indebted, when individuals get so indebted, when corporations get so indebted, the debts are so high, you no longer have normal economic relationships because monetary policy. The only way that all this debt can continue forward is that. The central banks have to accommodate it, meaning mm-hmm. if, they, if the central bank stop printing money, there is no ec- economics that allows this system to continue, which is why, whether we like it or not, monetary policy is what drives asset markets number yep. one. It's the number one factor. Yep. And we can argue all we want. It should be all these other factors. If they pull the money away, we're going down. If they pr- put the money in, we're going up. 
And, you know, some will go up more, some will go up less. There's, there are other fundamental factors that once that is determined, determines which ones outperform and others. But at the end of the day, we are in a central bank um, driven liquidity asset market situation. And we will continue to be in that until we move to a new system and somehow find a way to get rid of the indebtedness with which the world has and move on to some new set of rules. Obviously, right now, we're not there yet. So until that happens, yeah, Jackson Hole is very, very important, whether mm -hmm. we like it or not. Yep. So what you're saying, Sean, is it, it works till it doesn't, and then they figure something else out. Yeah, it works until it doesn't. And, mm -hmm. and, and what I have found is that, you know, over time, look, th there isn't any sane person who has any remote bit of intelligence that can say that we're on a sustainable path with debt creation going up parabolically everywhere in the world. I mean, obviously, that's an unsustainable oh, system. The politicians sure. know it's, it's an yep. unsustainable system. Everyone knows it's an unsustainable system. So we have to move to something different, but you just can't just do it all at once. You've got to, you know, a little this and a little that and a little that and a little this and a little that and... And over time, you you sort of, you know, first it's Bitcoin, and now it's digital currencies. We're going to start moving away to cashless society, and you know, you start moving to all these different things that we're putting in place to gradually move our way to a different system. And that's what that's what that's what has to happen. That's what's going to happen. But it just can't happen overnight. So in the meantime, what I believe the politicians and the central banks try and do is, you know, buy enough time until we're ready. For what's next, yeah. the next reset, the next Bretton Woods three, whatever you want to call it, right. that we see about every seven hundred years, we go to a new set of rules uh, for the for the global economy, and and we yeah. certainly need that. We're heading towards that, and you know sooner or later, at some point, we will move into that, yeah. whatever that looks like. So for sure. All right, Sean, good stuff as usual. Folks, gonna reach out to you, and get more information about what you're doing over at Hacker Financial. What's the best way to do that? Our uh, Twitter page is at Faradex11. We have a LinkedIn page. We also have our website at Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, -T, advisors with an S, dot com, where we put from time to time some interviews that we do and some snippets of information that go over our, you know, natural climate cycle algorithm work and other factors and statistics and cycles and correlations that we utilize to make our forecast for farmers um, and, and for traders who are interested in agriculture. Sorry. Right on. Okay. Well, Sean, appreciate you being the podcast, man. Thanks, Casey. Look forward to it again. Right on. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast. Go to the YouTube channel, which is the Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel, and check out the video version of this podcast right there. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related and get all the information that uh, is out there for blogs and podcasts and everything else. So, that's at movingironllc.com, and you can get that information whenever you want that. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Sean Hackett. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800 657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. 
No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving higher in the 21st century. Hardware. 